Hey, everyone. Can you hear me all right? All right. Uh, before we get started, I would just like to personally thank uh, Tish Hayes, who's on faculty here in the library, who uh, is an amazing collaborator and uh, helps me bounce around lots of ideas in getting ready for this presentation today. So thank you, Tish. I appreciate all your help. And thank you to all of you for spending your Thursday morning with us. I'm pleased to be presenting here with my dear friend and colleague, Jeffrey. Uh, as Troy mentioned to us, we're going to be covering communication, consent, STI prevention, societal influences, sexual myths. We're going to do what we can within an hour here. So uh, <laughs> hopefully you'll be able to take something away from our presentation today to improve your sexual health, uh, your communication skills, and hopefully uh, in the relationships that you have. So. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a licensed therapist by trade. I see clients on the weekends, uh, uh, so I tend to work a lot, and I see a lot of issues that come up. Sexual problems seems to be one of the things that tends to come up often, right, in my counseling sessions. So sexual communication is the one area that I tend to focus on. So when, when you think about what people say, what do, you, what do you believe most people want from a sexual experience? Now, now, we may not answer this out loud. I just want you to think about it. You, you may be surprised, you might not be surprised, but the number one thing I always hear from clients, and here's what I want from a sexual experience. They tell me they want pleasure and closeness. Now, just take a quick moment. Ask anybody next to you if you were surprised to hear that. <laughs> Who's surprised? I'm not surprised. <laughs> Most people want pleasure and closeness. That's what most people tell us, right? However, check this out. In my years of doing counseling, right, and I take a ton of notes, here are the, here's the stuff that comes up. Now, while people say that they want pleasure and closeness, that's not what they focus on during sexual activity. They're worried about their partners judging them, right? They're worried about waking up their kids. They're worried, no, they are, they're worried about that. Worried about judging themselves, they, you know, what concerns me is that people are worried about preventing unwanted activity towards them, right? Uh, another concerning thing, of course, is, you know, you know, instead of focusing on pleasure, they're, they're worried about experiencing pain or avoiding pain. Uh, I don't even know what function, functioning the right way is, but, uh, or where that ever comes from, but they're worried about that. Uh, climaxing too quickly, right? I don't want to climax too quickly. Or, I need to hurry because, you know, I got to get to work. Who knows? I don't know what people say. Uh, and so what would, you, what would you say is, you know, is like the top three things that I tend to hear? Anybody? Can I tell you? Let me tell you. Oh, I hear judging themselves and feeling shame, right? I, I don't feel good about myself. I hear, about, I hear that a lot in my office. I hear about, you know, I don't necessarily know all the people too well that I'm with, so they do things to me that I, I'm not comfortable with. I just don't know how to navigate that. And interestingly, my older clientele have hip problems, right? No, they do. They have physical issues, and they say, you know, I love my partner. I want to be with them. Uh, they are healthy. They, you know, have an appetite, you know, every other day. And, and I can't. I can't. And so what happens when you can't or you have these types of issues that you're dealing with, right? So here's what I'm going to ask you here. These are the main issues that come up in my office. Uh, so, and I don't know, as you look at them, they're all concerning, right? But I don't know if you're surprised by this, but the top three are the things that I hear most often, right? We deal with feelings of shame, guilt, and embarrassment. My clients are worried about getting STDs, whether they're with partners for a long time or whether they have casual sex. Uh, but I think the thing that upsets me the most, that concerns me the most, is number three. Can you imagine you're in a loving relationship, right? Your partner wants to be with you. You want to be with your partner. But because of the issues that happen, you hide from them or you avoid them, right? That's sad. So how do we get past all that stuff? That's where we have to take a look at sexual communication. So you might say to yourself, you know, why do we need to sexually communicate? Well, number one, you want to avoid these things from happening in your relationship. You want to be able to focus on pleasure and closeness instead of these issues here. However, this is a slide, and these are the three things that my clients and I talk about. These are the three main goals of communication. So you communicate with your partner to agree on consent, right? 
Is this thing that we're engaging in, are you okay with it? Am I okay with it? Are we both on the same page, right? And when I talk about consensual, uh, consensual sex, you know, I might say to my partner, okay, we're gonna do this and we're gonna wear a condom because I don't wanna get an STD and I don't want to get pregnant, theoretically, right? And so my partner, unknowingly to me, takes off his condom in the middle of it, right? I didn't agree to that. So we gotta be sure that that's consensual. Is the behavior responsible and honest? So I meet somebody, I don't know them too well, right? And they tell me that I've had a vasectomy and I say, okay, I'm worried about getting pregnant, but if you had a vasectomy, I, then maybe I won't get pregnant. But they, they, they did not have a vasectomy, right? That's not honest at all. Uh, or responsible, you know, meaning if I don't want something to happen to me, but my partner's not telling me that they have an STD. Or maybe my partner doesn't know that they have an STD. And finally, are you getting out of the experience what you're hoping? Are you getting the pleasure in closest and other things? Because if you're not, that's where we need to communicate. Right. Guys, just checking in. Everybody okay? Awesome. Thumbs up? Awesome. Thanks so much. Now, I have four slides that uh, talk about techniques for communication, but also as I look at these four slides, I want to say that these four slides also help you with consent. Okay. The hardest thing for a lot of people is getting started to talk about sex. So how do you even bring it up? I, I tried to think about three, three quotes that I give my clients to be able to help them with conversation. So in the beginning, if you don't know your partner so well and you're just getting started with your relationship, it's kind of a clinical question, but how do you feel about being in a sexual relationship with me? You know, But you could ask that in so many ways. Like, what, what do you think about sexuality? Are we there yet, right? You could ask that. If you are having difficulties in the middle, you're in a relationship and things aren't going the way that you want them to, you know, our relationship is really important to me, right? I want to have a very healthy sexual relationship with you, you know, express concern. Well, finally, if you are really bothered by something, I suppose, uh, and you're too embarrassed to bring it up, I think this is a really inviting statement, right? I want to talk to you about something, but it's hard for me to talk about. Could you help me with it, right? Who wouldn't say no? I think you also have to learn about your partner's needs. Uh, I, to me, open-ended questions could bring up so much more. So as I look at these four things, I mean, these are four things you might ask, you know? Does anything disappoint you in our relationship, you know? What do you like best about when we make love? I mean, you know, those are nice things to talk about. What do you think about birth control? What bothered you most about the argument that we had yesterday? I think learning about where they're at gives you a chance to be in their shoes, right? And gives you nice perspective. Now, this one is where I see a lot of struggles with the people that I work with. Giving your partner information and making requests. So check this out. I don't know how you're supposed to know what your partner wants. And I don't know how they're supposed to know what you want unless you tell them kind of directly sometimes. Um, let them know when you like something. Let them, let them know when you don't like something. Or when they do something right, give them a thumbs up, right? Give them a head nod. <laughs> give, them, give them a moan, <laughs> right? <laughs> and give them some kind of signal. Like, who wouldn't love to hear, oh, that's great. I really like that. Like, wouldn't you like to hear that? <laughs> you would. Or don't stop, that's the perfect spot on my shoulders. I tried to keep it clean, right? <laughs> or, or any other spot that you happen to be like being touched at. Or, you know, do you see anything wrong with asking feedback? Like stopping and saying, hey, how's this feel? <laughs> Is this okay with you? I think, I, I think that, I mean, you know, if you want consent and you want to, and you want to communicate, I think these are great things to ask. Okay. now. When you look at giving criticism, right, um, this is a tough one because you don't want to hurt your partner's feelings. You also don't want them to be defensive. So I was thinking about like a nice way to ask things, right? So I would like it if we spent more time cuddling after sex. Like I think that's better than saying, you never pay attention to me, right? Because the other person's going to get defensive. When we make love, I want you to kiss me more. Tell me how much you care about me. That's better than, you, pay, you show me no affection. Even though we're together, you never pay attention to me. Or I find it painful when you use crude language, right? You know, instead of saying, do you really need to say that to me right now? So I can see where people would get defensive, you know? Or 
Uh, even going a little further, tell your partner directly, I really like it when you perform cunnilingus and fellatio. That's pretty clinical. <laughs> However, those are the terms. Okay, and this one I put together this morning. Uh, you know, again, it sounds like consent to me, but asking like direct permission, what if we try kissing today? Or you're in the middle of an activity and you say, let's try this next. What do you say? What's the worst they could say? Uh, you'll be like, all right, let's go back to what we were doing. <laughs> I would really like to what could we say that we want to do to our partner? Offer cunnilingus. I really like it when I offer that to you or something like that. Or what do you think about us trying anal sex tonight? <laughs> and, and again, I think you have to ask. You have to ask. And I think these are fun ways to ask. Okay, now, I don't know what you think of this. I don't know what you think of this, but these are three homework assignments that I give my clients, right? So clients that don't know how to ask for consent, clients that sometimes are uncomfortable with like telling their partner, here's what I like, here's what I don't like. So the word petting has always been bizarre to me, but that is the clinical term, you know. But so I think you're talking about a, a, you know, a sensual massage here. You know, so explore each other's bodies and ask for feedback here and there, right? That way you get to know your partner, they get to tell you what they like and vice versa. Number two is even more direct. Take your partner's hand and guide them all over your body. Show them how it is you like to be caressed, the areas that you like to be caressed. And as they continue, those are the things that happen within your sexual activity, right? Signal your partner. I don't know how people signal their partner, but they might be laying down and giving a thumbs up, right? They might be giving a thumbs down. They might be saying, you know, this, or they might be tapping your arm saying that's enough. So whatever it is that you want to do. But these are three good exercises, and then I think these are ways to learn. Because should you date 10 people in your life? Should you date 100 people in your life? Should you date four people in your life? Everybody's going to be different in the way that they want to be caressed, touched, and whatnot. So you have to find out what different people want. Okay. I'm going to open it up to you just for a minute here. I think we're doing just fine with time. We're at the 15-minute mark. Take a moment, ask anybody who's sitting directly next to you. First, first, wish them a happy Thursday. Just say hey. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday, Jeffrey. It's nice to see you. I like to do this in my class, but this is class. Some people don't want to ask for what they want. Some people have difficulty speaking up. Could you ask anybody next to you, why do you think people have trouble speaking up or expressing what they want sexually? What's what would be the thing that's preventing them? Go ahead. Ask anybody next to you. I'm curious, I'm curious. Throw something out there. Tell me. Yeah, like what if I ask my partner to do something that's atypical? I don't know what atypical is, but you know. Right, right. So you might be self-conscious, right? Or if you are really into a kink, that you want to ask about? I, I, don't, I don't know what that could be, but you know, could we wear my you know, tight leather boots tonight? <laughs> you know, I kept it clean, folks. <laughs> and, and you don't want to be judged. I think that's an excellent point, right? People are embarrassed sometimes to ask. Anybody else, Linda? True. They're going to think I'm this or that. 
Oh, maybe we should grab a mic for the audience, huh, Troy? What do you say? Uh, so, so Linda, yes, thanks for the suggestion. Linda said that, uh, um, that uh, we might feel vulnerable, right? Because we, we might be uncomfortable to be able to ask those things. Where, where we might chat about food preferences, but not necessarily about sexual preferences. Excellent point. And rejection, too, right? We might feel rejected uh, if we ask for something. Anybody else? Would you be surprised? Would you be surprised if people don't want to seem promiscuous when they ask for things? People don't want to be judged. People should know. My partner should already know what I want, right? Why should I have to ask? Have you ever heard that, right? It's just supposed to happen naturally, right? Let it happen organically, or it'll ruin the mood if I ask. Now, it'll ruin the mood big time if your partner starts doing things to you that you're not okay with, or if you are left unsatisfied and do not have the pleasure and the closeness that people want. Now, we have about 10 minutes here because I want to be able to give our, uh, our esteemed colleague uh, just as much time here. But I was thinking about consent. So all this stuff, of course, leads to consent. And um, you want to be able to get consent. I tried to find two definitions, permission from your partner to engage in a sexual activity with them. Both partners are freely in agreeing to all the activities that are occurring. Could I just add? Yes, uh, please, for please. For the second definition, yes. it might also say all partners. All partners. more than two. There could be three. There could be four. No, 36. I mean, you know, or 36. <laughs> <laughs> you know, absolutely, Depend, depending on people's choices and, and needs, right? Absolutely. Now, I had a video. We're not going to have time to show the video for our sake of time, but uh, Suzanne Nasser sent me a video that says how consent is like tea, and it's really, really good. So when you, you know, if you get home later today, maybe on your phones, Google consent tea, T-E-A, right? And it's a beautiful comparison on the two. So what I wanted to think about here is uh, what consent costs, right? What is it worth? What do you risk by asking for consent? Um, let's look at the left side first. What do you risk by asking for permission or asking for consent? If anything, do you risk anything? Think about it for a minute. What do we risk if we ask? Because we're going to look at the easier question on the right. But do you risk anything by asking for consent? So I ask my partner, can we do this? Can we try this? Are you all right with this? Am I, am I risking anything by doing that? Okay, I could be told no. Give me a raise of hand. Yes, ma'am. Right, partner might judge. They might judge me. They might judge me. Cool. Anybody else? I think we have one more hand up. Anybody else? Yes. Offended. They might be offended if I ask for consent, depending on what it is. Right. I, I believe most partners would m maybe be appreciative. You know, I thank you for asking, but I think we're going to have to disagree on the beads that you're asking me to use. <laughs> Or something like that, you know. But, you know, thank you, but no, I'm not all right with that, right? I'd rather not. Now, the bigger question, of course, is what do we risk by not asking for consent? What do you risk by not asking? I want to put maybe four or five things up here. What do you think should be up here? Pain. pain. Emotional pain? Physical pain? Both. Both. We risk pain by not asking. Right. So if we don't ask for consent, we are unsatisfied. Absolutely. Anybody else? Sexual assault. Thank you. Rape. Sexual assault. There was one more hand. If I don't ask and I proceed, and my partner is terrified of me. I think we're opening the door here. Not I think, we are opening the door here. There was one more hand, I want to be sure. What else do you think should be up here? I have one that I'm going to throw up here. Anybody else? You could potentially lose your partner. Absolutely. 
And I think they're not going to trust me anymore, right? So I'm, they're going to lose trust. So consent could be sexy. Because when you look at asking for consent, you know, I don't mean to be weird, but you know, what if you say, what if we try this? What if we do this tonight? What do you think about this? And what if they say yes? That could be awesome. Okay, and then we have a couple minutes here. Um, I, I put these questions up. Just I was thinking about okay, you know, if I'm talking about consent, how could we ask for it? I think if you look at our four slides, these are ways to ask for consent. These are activities to ask for consent, and I think you could give consent in the same way with any of the slides that we looked at. The second one is what I was kind of interested in. Whose responsibility is it to ask? Is it the person who's initiating, the person who's on the receiving end, vice versa, men, women? Who should ask? Whose responsibility do you all think it is? Both. I think everybody should ask. I think that's an excellent way to think about that. People might feel comfortable, uncomfortable saying no. Anybody want to throw something out there? Why do we think somebody might be uncomfortable saying no? Somebody asks you to do something, but you don't want to say no to them. Could it be because we don't want them to judge us? We don't want them to leave us? It could be some of those issues. If I push my partner's hand away, right? They're touching me in a way that I'm just not ready for right now. And I push their hand away. I mean, that should send a message to them, right? However, do you think they might get that message? We're, make, you know, we're making out. They're kissing me in places that I'm okay with. And at one, at one point, the hand starts going to a place where I just don't like, right? I don't like them touching my stomach. And I move their hand away or other places. Do I need to, do I need to say more? Do I need to speak up? Or, you know, again, I'm not saying that, that it would be anybody's fault if they continued touching me or it would be my fault if they continued, but should I also speak up? Do you think so? Maybe if they don't get it the first time at that point, maybe I need to speak up. And then I think the biggest question is on the bottom, folks. Ask anybody next to you, how often do you need to ask for consent? Serious question, how often? All the time? Who says all the time? Who says every time? Who says even if you're married? Even if you've been with your partner for 30 years? Even if every Thursday night after Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> we go upstairs? Should we ask? You know, you want to go upstairs? I don't think we should take that for granted. Now, this is an interesting one. In the middle of an activity, should we ask? Check in as we move activities throughout the evening. So I don't think there's anything wrong with consent. I think it keeps everybody on the same page. Uh, anything I missed? Anything you want to throw out there? I think that might be one of my last slides. I know we talked about doing this one together. I think we're going to, Jeffrey, we're going to move into the, the sexual health piece, right? And we're going to talk about getting tested. So how do you stay healthy, right? Tested, getting tested. What should we say about getting tested? What should we say? Well, it's good to get tested. Right, right. Um, one should get tested ideally between sex partners. If you have multiple sex partners, hopefully um, they're not overlapping so much to a degree that you can't, um, if you catch something, figure out where you got it from. Um, but people should be tested, anybody who's sexually active should be tested regularly. Uh, there's a lot that happens where people have a fear of HIV AIDS, so they get tested for HIV AIDS, but don't necessarily get tested for anything else, and then find out two years later that they've got latent syphilis because they've never been tested for syphilis chlamydia. Uh, or anything else. I think a lot of times when people have chlamydia, they find out because it's right. painful when they pee. True, but with um, it, sometimes people after a or, month, though. Or other times, yeah. Know? Um, so it's important to have, uh, if you see your physician, to ask for what's called a full panel where they test for everything. Um, but yeah, uh, getting tested regularly is, is a good idea. 
Um, I think, of course, we also. Can I add something about getting by testing? All means. In my human sexuality textbook and other academic sources that I've read, um, for most people, if should they contract S, uh, HIV, within a month or two or three, it would show up in the blood work. However, there are rare cases where people don't. HIV is not detected for up until six months. So if, I, if we had to give you any advice and, and you're with a partner or you're, if you're with multiple partners that you don't know so well, I would encourage, you know, we're, talking, we're gonna talk about condoms next. But I would say if you are wondering when should I take the condom off and you're with a partner for a long time, I would say after six months and then get tested after six months just to be 100% sure because that is the latest that has been reported where AIDS could show up because people could get tested month, month two, month three, and it still doesn't show up, only to have shown up finally at month six. A lot of couples and multiple person relationships also get tested together, so um, there could be a little bit of trust there if you get the results together from the same physician. So a lot of, a lot of people in relationships like to do that as well. So like Nick said, condoms are, uh, can be helpful and fun, so I tried to find a nice, colorful, fun picture of condoms <laughs> for you there. Um, but one thing with condoms that we have to remember is that um, condoms are great. Condoms can help prevent a lot of things, um, but condoms are really only effective if you use lube, all right? So lube, here we go, people. Um, some body parts might make a little bit of their own lube. Some body parts might need to have some lube added to them. Um, what happens with, especially with penetrative sex, is there's friction that happens. And sometimes a little bit of friction can feel good, but sometimes a lot of friction can be bad. Uh, a lot of friction can cause abrasions. A lot of friction can cause tearing in the body, which doesn't sound too pleasant. Um, so lube is your friend. Lube makes everything wee uh, and kind of slide together nicely. Um, a quick rule about lube, though, that we should be aware of if you're taking notes, here's a good thing to remember, is that if you're using a latex barrier, you should use a water-based lube. Has anybody heard of this before? I know people in my class have heard of this before. We haven't um, gotten there yet. <laughs> uh, if you're using a latex barrier, you should use a water-based lube. The other type of lube is called an oil-based lube, and oil-based lubes have a tendency to deteriorate latex, thus making them ineffective. Um, so it'd be making, uh, uh, an oil-based lube can make a latex condom tear. It could also make microscopic holes inside of uh, the latex, which would make it easier for fluids from one person to pass to the other. So if you're using latex barriers, uh, oil-based lube is your friend. And I think Nick added a nice slide here. And Brianna says no. No. <laughs> Crisco. Don't use Crisco. Um, that's Vaseline. The third one is a hand cream is a hand cream. All of them have petroleum in there. Petroleum is a base of gasoline. And so they do, they deteriorate condoms. But when, so I've given you some brand names here, but uh, like, so say somebody wants to go to Walgreens, Jeffrey, or they want to go to CVS and they say, okay, I heard about water-based lube. Like what would be like a couple of brands where they, they could, that would be oil, I mean water-based? Well, a lot of them, a lot of companies that make lube make them both. Uh, so Gun Oil is a brand. Uh, they make both oil and water-based lube. So usually it's pretty clear packaging yeah. if you just look at KY. Um, the packaging. Yeah, awesome. All right, so we already talked a little bit about HIV AIDS. And um, since we brought it up, I do want to bring, I do want to talk about HIV AIDS for just a little bit more. Um, this is uh, a lot of people's major concern is HIV AIDS. And it makes sense that it would be because um, a lot of people have died and still suffer from HIV AIDS. Um, HIV AIDS came around in the early 1980s in this country and Ronald Reagan was president at the time and there were over 20,000 people who died from HIV AIDS before Ronald Reagan ever even said the word AIDS out loud in public. This is a major health crisis. Over 20,000 people had died from this disease. And the president, and, and illnesses related to this disease, and the president had yet not bothered to ever say HIV AIDS out loud. And primarily that's because the large majority of the people who died from HIV AIDS related complications were gay men. Um, if you think about a lot of different demographics, if you think about different types of people, you might find um, 
You could find a lot of old lesbians in their 80s and 90s. You could find a lot of old straight guys in their 80s and 90s. You could find a lot of old straight women in their 80s and 90s. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a whole lot of gay men in their 80s and 90s because almost this entire generation was wiped out by HIV-AIDS, primarily because of a complete and utter lack of regard on the part of the federal government. Um, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and the federal government under Reagan's administration really did nothing to prevent this disease. It wasn't until he was six years into his presidency that he ever even said the word HIV AIDS out loud in public. The press, the press secretary for the White House at the time was actually caught laughing anytime asked about HIV AIDS. He would laugh and say, I don't have it, you don't have it, so we're good, right? And that was the White House's official response to HIV AIDS for the first six years of Ronald Reagan's presidency. Uh, so it makes sense that people are afraid of HIV AIDS because of the sheer number of people who've died from it. Um, but one thing that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is this drug that exists now called Truvada, also called PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, this drug, when taken once per day, is pretty much 100% effective at preventing HIV AIDS. So, if you, so just as a scenario, if we have a couple people who are in a relationship together, if one person has HIV AIDS, uh, the two people in the relationship can have as much unprotected sex as they want to, have as much transmission of fluids back and forth as they want to, and as long as the person who doesn't have HIV AIDS takes this pill, they're not going to get HIV AIDS. Um, can I just see a show of hands for people who already knew that this drug exists? Okay, a couple people in my class who we've talked about this, a couple <laughs> friends of mine who I trust would know about this. Um, this drug has been on the market approved for HIV negative people for years. It's been available for years, since at least 2012. That's when I first heard about it. It's been available for years. But somehow we are missing, there's some gap that happens in how we talk about sexual health um, where people just aren't learning about this. Also, another thing with HIV AIDS, uh, a thing that people often don't recognize or don't know about, is HIV AIDS is measured according to one's uh, T cell count, their viral load, all right? And a lot of drugs like Truvada and other drugs can serve to lower um, uh, the amount of HIV AIDS in one's system. Uh, such that you could be considered what's called undetectable. Um, so you could take an HIV AIDS test, and even though a person would be HIV positive, their test results would actually show negative because the virus is so low within their system. If that, virus, if that viral load is so low that someone is considered undetectable, they could, have sex, they could have sexual activity with another person who's negative and not transfer the disease. Could I, does that make sense? You follow me? Someone who's, who has HIV but the viral load is so low um, that they could have unprotected sex with someone else and that other person will not get HIV. Can I see a show of hands for people who knew that? Again, just a few people know this. So there's a huge gap in terms of the knowledge about what's going on about HIV AIDS um, and, and sexual health in general. I think with, um, uh, ignorance is sometimes a bad word, but ignorance, I don't, I don't mean to say that people are ignorant, but ignorance is just not knowing something, right? And um, ignorance's best friend is fear. And there's a lot of fear and ignorance surrounding HIV AIDS and other issues regarding sexual health. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, there is so much ignorance and fear about it, and that these have been, you know, ideas that the scientific and medical community have agreed on for literally years that just hasn't seeped its way down to the general population yet. Okay, so a couple, last little bit about sexual health there. Um, for the rest of the time, what I plan to talk about are just um, some social influences on sexual values. So if we're trying to think about having sexual healthy relationships, um, if you want a, sexu uh, a sexual relationship, I know plenty of people who don't want sexual relationships, but if you're interested in a sexual or romantic relationship, um, it's good to be aware of how social forces outside of the individual might contribute to what our expectations are. What we think is right, what we think is wrong, what we think is appropriate, and what we think is inappropriate. There are a number of social institutions um, that kind of channel and direct how we think about not just sexual health, but anything. 
Um, so we got the Simpsons here. The Simpsons is going to tell us a lot about different social institutions. We learn about sex, relationships, and, and everything else in society. We learn about it from religion. We learn about it from mass media. We learn about it from the school system. We learn about it at home. We learn about it through the ways that we have recreation. We learn about sexual attitudes from school. We learn about sexual relationships through, um, through recreation, through going to bars. Um, and just in general, there are a lot of social institutions in society that channel and direct how we think about sexuality, how we think about relationships, and everything else. Um, how we think about gender, how we think about race, how we think about anything um, can all be channeled and directed from these social institutions. So what I'd like to do is just pick a couple of these. I'll talk a little bit about mass media, school, family, um, and religion, and how we learn about sexual attitudes from these. Okay, so we'll start with um, mass media here. Um, but I just want to remind everyone that when we go into looking at mass media, uh, our ideas of beauty and what we consider to be attractive and beautiful um, are filtered to us through society, all right? So through the social institutions that we interact with on a regular basis, including and primarily mass media, we get ideas about what is attractive and what is unattractive. And we should all be aware of a couple of things here. First is that these things are socially constructed. That means that they are made up by society, all right? If we look in different cultures, in different societies, and, in the, and across time, we'll find that ideas about what is considered attractive, what is considered beautiful, changes from culture to culture and across time. And if something changes from culture to culture or across time, well, that's a pretty big clue that it's just made up by that culture or by that time period. So keeping that in mind, I'd just like to show you a couple slides here that focus on how maybe these ideas are constructed through, um, through social institutions, starting with mass media. Uh, so I want to show you a couple slides here to start with that I'm sure a lot of you have seen before about the effects of Photoshop, all right? So you know, uh, you see the people on the covers of the magazines or the spreads in the magazines and so on, and that these are entirely doctored images, right? That no, if we look at the model who's in this picture, that model doesn't even actually look like they do in the picture, right? So I just picked a couple examples of this. Um, here's one, same exact picture, just changed a whole lot to be, um, to fit some sort of ideal of what is beautiful, all right? So if we see this on the cover of the magazine, we get an idea that this is what is supposed to be beautiful. We get an idea that this is what we're supposed to want in a sexual partner. Does anyone actually look like that? No, she doesn't even look like that. And that's a picture of her, right? How does that even make any sense, right? If this is the person, uh, we get this idea that I want to be with this type of person, that person doesn't even exist. So we can see how hair, makeup, uh, skin tone can all be changed through, um, through Photoshop and, and whatever other uh, photo editing software exists. We can also see how the size and shapes of bodies can be changed. Um, so here, uh, the model has been made slimmer. You can especially see it in her legs. Mm -hmm. um, how, and she's, I believe she's taller here as well, right? Um, again, she doesn't even look like that. Um, I was trying to find a lot of pictures uh, where we do this to men. Uh, and, and the sort of muscular ideal of males. And there's tons of those too, but I didn't have time. I don't want to have 100,000 slides for you. Um, but it happens for people of all different types of bodies um, where uh, images are altered to create some artificial standard of what is considered uh, beautiful. My favorite one, though, I got to show you my favorite one is this one. I'm going to show you the after picture. Has anybody seen this one before? There's a video. It's, I think it's from a, from a website called collegehumor.com, which sometimes has lots of fun stuff, sometimes some terribly offensive stuff. Um, anyway, so there's a video on this website called College Humor where they show the, they show the effects in reverse. So they, the video starts with the after product. They show this model here as the after product, and they show the photo editing software in reverse, where they uh, where they end with this. They start with this picture, and then and it slowly like, kind of plays in reverse to get to what the image actually started as. Does anyone in the audience know what the image started as? Yeah, what did it start as? A piece of pizza, right? I, I'm not making this up. The before picture is a slice of pizza, and then they go through and take the pepperonis and reshape those to be into a bikini and take the crust and everything and the cheese and literally make it into this 
person here. This person on the right does not even exist. There is no person in the world who that is a picture taken of. It is literally this pizza slice that's been morphed into that person, right? If anything, this should show you that these standards of beauty are completely artificial. They are completely constructed when we have, uh, when you can turn a piece of pizza into this um, model here. Another issue that we come in terms with, in terms of uh, how the media influence how we think about beauty standards, is how race comes into play here. And unfortunately, there's this thing that happens where we like to combine our racism with our misogyny. So misogyny is a hatred and lack of respect for women. Combine that with racism, and we get this product called Clean and Dry Freshness, where I'm not sure if anybody's seen this product before, or similar products that are basically skin bleaching creams. Hmm. Um, so if your inner thighs or, or uh, labia or vulva or whatever you have aren't quite the color that you think they're supposed to be, you could apply this product, clean and dry freshness, to your area of your body that you think is too dark, adding the racism to our misogyny, and then you can turn that body part white. And apparently you also get rose petals when you do it too. All right, so these are just screen grabs that I took off of one of their commercials. I'm not sure where the rose petals come from, but it's an interesting sort of thing that happens. Another thing to think about in terms of our ideas about beauty standards, uh, again, keeping an idea with how unrealistic these beauty standards are, are the size and shape of expected genitals and body parts, right? Um, there's so much research on the consumption of pornography, all right? So if you're someone who regularly consumes pornography, or if you're dating someone or someones who regularly consume pornography, you should be aware of a couple of the major side effects of pornography consumption. One of the major side effects is the more pornography a person watches, the less attractive they'll find their partner. Why? Because again, we see that type of person in pornography who doesn't actually exist. That's the type of person I want. That's the type of person I realistically can't get because that person doesn't really exist. So the person who I do who I am able to have a sexual relationship, I'm less likely to find that person attractive because I've been consuming this artificial standard the whole time. So one problem with pornography consumption is uh, uh, that we're watching these unrealistic expectations. Uh, and this also comes into the issue of um, whether or not size matters. I tried to find a picture that was sort of G-rated for whether or not size matters, and this is the best that I could come up with. Um, so use your imagination and you can think about whether or not size matters. Um, in, this, in this instance, I think size does matter because the elephant in the back can reach the leaves and the poor little one in the front can't. Um, but again, if, we're, if, if you consume a lot of pornography, uh, you'll see uh, an expectation about what penis size is supposed to look like, where, where the average penis size in pornography, by the way, this research is really hard to get. There's not a whole lot of peer-reviewed scholarly research on, uh, on penis size in pornography. Um, but generally speaking, it seems that in pornography, the standard penis size is going to be eight to nine inches long, all right? If we look at research that actually does measure penis size in different cultures around the world, um, there's quite a variation, but the average might be around like five or six inches long. Um, so if you're constantly watching pornography with an eight or nine inch penis, watching pornography that has an eight or nine inch <laughs> penis, correct myself, whatever you have, um, and then that becomes the ideal, that becomes what I want, and then in real life, how, how many partners can I actually get who fulfill that ideal? Okay. Um, another issue to think about with mass media and how, um, how expectations are set out can be, can be thought about in terms of what images don't we see. All right. If we're, unless something is a, a particular fetish or something like that, what images don't we see? If we not not just in pornography, but in family sitcoms and TV shows that happen at night. Um, if you if you flip through the channels on television, you'll see lots of different types of sexual relationships. Um, but there's a lot of types that we won't see. Um, how often do you see television shows that portray um, people without disabilities having sex? Probably quite a bit, right? How often do you see uh, television shows that have people with a disability having sex? 
Do you see that a lot in TV? We don't really see that a whole lot, right? We don't really, and on the right we have a, uh, the transgender flag. Uh, so here's another, another population that's grossly underrepresented in terms of their portrayals as being sexually active people, all right? Where, there, where the assumption might be then that people who, who experience and live with disabilities, maybe they just don't have sex, right? Well, there is sexual activity among people who, have, uh, who live and have with experience with, uh, with disabilities. Same thing with transgender people. We could see that the expectation in terms of media representations has changed for uh, gay men over time. It used to be that gay men weren't in mass media, but when they were in mass media, they weren't really portrayed as having sex. So if anybody remembers this television show called Will and Grace, um, this, I'm not sure, people are getting younger and younger as I get older and older. There again. used to be this show called Will and Grace. It's on again. They brought it back. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, that's my personal bias showing. Well, so there's these two characters on the show, Will and Jack, all right, not Grace. Will and Jack, the two gay guys. Jack was this overly flamboyant, feminine gay guy, and Will was um, sort of a masculine version of a gay guy. Will was the one that you were supposed to like, and Jack was the one who was supposed to be annoying. And for seasons and seasons and seasons and seasons of that show, Will was never actually shown having a relationship or having sex with anybody ever, all right? Meanwhile, Jack, the character that you're really not supposed to like, who's supposed to be kind of annoying, he was having sex left and right. So the gay men that you're supposed to like, we like to neutralize their sexuality. When it comes to sexuality um, for among women, um, how, women how, how sexuality portrayed among women is often represented is as though it exists for a male gaze, uh, not male, like a male eyes, right, for, for men to look at. Um, when, to, when women are engaging in sexual activity, it's often portrayed as for men's pleasure as, as compared to for the pleasure of the women who are engaging in the sex to begin with. Okay, um, so media gives us lots of ideas about, about what sex is supposed to be looking like, who's supposed to have sex, and so on. I just want to check the time here, see how we're doing. All right. Um, so when we're watching, when we're, when we're consuming media, it's important to kind of pay attention when you're doing it. Don't just passively sit there and collect the media as it comes to you, but maybe have conversations with it, uh, conversations with your friends who are watching it. If you're a parent, have conversations with your children. If you live with your parents, have conversations with your parents about what you consume, rather than just saying, oh, okay, that show's over, what are we gonna watch now? Well, let's have a conversation about what happened in that show. Is that realistic? Is that what I want? Is that how the world actually is? Another social institution that channels and directs our thoughts and ideas uh, is school. Uh, so there's lots of research on how school programs influence how we think about sexual activity. For the longest time, schools did abstinence-only education. That's the idea where don't have sex till you get married, all right? Which, which I always thought was kind of a funny idea. Uh, we have celebrities on TV that we're supposed to identify with that are talking about how great sex is, and then you have the teacher who's supposed to be boring who's going to say, don't have sex. Which one are you going to believe? Right? The celebrity that we can identify with on TV that says sex and drugs are cool, or the teacher who says sex and drugs are bad. Right? So what happens is we can look at research on schools that do abstinence-only education, and what we'll find is that, again, when people are ignorant about sexual education, they, not surprisingly, make uninformed decisions about it. So those school districts that have abstinence-only education, where they tell you don't get don't have sex until you get married, those schools are significantly higher, uh, significantly more likely to have students that have higher rates of sexually transmitted infections and students that are significantly more likely to become uh, parents as teenagers, right? Because they haven't had real comprehensive sex education. Another problem uh, with sex education in schools is how we talk about anatomy, all right? Um, so we could think about uh, penis and the clitoris, okay? There's been lots of research on the penis. For decades and decades and decades, um, men have researched the penis and understanding all the different things about the penis. Since the 70s, we've taken MRIs and CAT scans and all sorts of different studies about the penis. I'm not sure how you sign up for one of those studies, but anyway. Um, and over all these decades, 
decades, there was very little conversation about the clitoris. So my colleague Nick Jesus here uh, loaned me an old copy of one of his textbooks that shows how the clitoris is defined. So this is, I, I scanned this from Nick's textbook here. Uh, it says uh, over here, the clitoris is commonly less than an inch and a quarter an inch in diameter. So the clitoris is about an inch long, all right? By the way, this book was published in 2002, all right? Just to show you when the book was published. Um, again, keep in mind that since the 70s and even before then, we've been doing lots of studies on the penis, and we never really bothered to do a study on the clitoris. Uh, what we found, uh, so, so also, also just real quickly, the image from that textbook shows the clitoris right here, uh, one inch piece of flesh um, that exists for stimulation, all right? Again, this is 2002. In 1998, um, I know the 1900s might seem so far ago now, but in the year 1998, uh, there, was, there was a researcher who said, you know what, I'm going to study the clitoris. Um, so she did the first MRI of a clitoris and showed the full size and scope of the clitoris. In 1998, that wasn't that long ago. But even then, we didn't have a full understanding of it. We didn't have like a full model that existed of the clitoris. That didn't happen until, are you ready, 2009. It, can you believe that we did not discover the clitoris until 2009? Now, I imagine there's a lot of people who have a clitoris who say, well, you know, I discovered mine. I know where mine is. Um, but the medical scientific community has, did not map out and create a model of the clitoris until 2009. And what we find is that the clitoris is actually a whole lot bigger than just one inch that sticks, uh, that's external. The large majority of the clitoris is internal and uh, can be several inches long and wraps around the vaginal cavity. We didn't find this out until 2009, right? But we've been studying the penis since the since the 70s and before that, right? So this also, so we can think about how education is, is portrayed, but also what gets researched? Whose interests get researched? And who's doing the researching? That person who did the first MRI scan of the clitoris was a person who had a clitoris, right? And, and women haven't been, and people who have clitorises, or clitori, I'm not quite sure what the plural is of that, um, people who have clitori haven't really been fully accepted within the medical establishment, within the scientific establishment, to be even able to do this research, right? So there's a huge gap in terms of, uh, of what the knowledge is and where people's lived experiences are. Okay, so another uh, social institution that channels and directs how we think about things is the family. <clears throat> uh, so we get lots of ideas about what our sexual relationships are supposed to be like, who we're supposed to have sex with, who we're not supposed to have sex with, um, when we're supposed to have sex, when we're not supposed to have sex, at when, when it's appropriate, and so on, all right? Um, but the most important thing is uh, to think about if you want a sexual relationship, what do you want your sexual relationship to be like? If you want a sexual relationship, presumably you want a satisfying one. Like, like Nick said at the beginning of the presentation, people want a satisfying and pleasurable sexual relationship if they want a sexual relationship. So if that's what you want, you have to figure out what that means to you, which might be different than what mom says should mean for me, which might be different than what grandpa says should mean for me or my older sibling or whatever, right? If we're socialized in these families, we get ideas about what is supposed to be appropriate for us. And you know, we don't necessarily agree with that. And sometimes it's really hard for us to accept what we like for ourselves because we've been so pressured from our family, from mass media, from education, and so on, telling us what we're supposed to want. Um, so it's nice to kind of think, well, what do I want? If I, if I had a sexual relationship, what do I want it to look like, all right? Um, just, a, uh, I want to end here uh, so we have time for questions, but just another social institution that gives us ideas about sexuality and uh, sexual relationships is, of course, religion, all right? So I just picked the three major world religions that we have here, um, but lots of religions are going to have ideas about what sexual relationships are supposed to look like. Um, and, and, and I don't want to overgeneralize here. If you were to ask 100 Jewish people opinions about what the Jewish faith says about sex, you'd probably get 100 different perspectives, right? Same thing with Christianity and same thing with Islam. 
so depending on who you talk to, you're going to get lots of different perspectives. So I don't want to overgeneralize and say that these religions say bad things about sex or whatever. Again, the point is that you have to be able to know what you want. Do you want a sexual relationship? Okay, what does that look like to you? And then what you have to do is go back to what Nick said and be able to communicate that to someone else. All right? That sounds kind of easy. On the surface, it sounds easy. What do I want? Figure that out. Tell somebody that that's what I want. And then find someone who says, yeah, I want that too. On the surface, that sounds kind of easy. But that could actually be really, really hard, especially if it involves leather boots, beads. Is that what you said? Um, I think that's all we have. But I think we'd love to open it up for uh, questions and comments. Um, uh, Dr. Swanson from the library has the microphone. So uh, if anybody would like to have, ask a question, please raise your hand. And Troy will come around and pass around the microphone. Any questions? Any questions we could take? Oh, there's one over here. I'm on my way. Awesome. You've all been wonderful, by the way. Um, we were talking about lube. Is coconut oil safe? I've heard like mixed hmm. things about that. Coconut oil. You know, I know plenty of people who use coconut oil as lube, um, but the people I know who use coconut oil as lube don't use condoms. Uh, in their relationship, like condoms just aren't an issue for them. Uh, so I actually don't know. I, I don't want to make up an answer. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we'll have to look about that one to see if there's any uh, kind of petroleum base to it. Good question. I know that, um, there, there you are. Um, I know that uh, the, my friends who use coconut oil definitely say that it's the best lube they've ever used. Um, so if, if, if condoms aren't an issue, then, I mean, it does have good reviews. But were you asking about condoms in particular with um, that? No. Then I would take Jeffrey's answer. Okay. <laughs> Try it out. It's also, uh, one of the reasons people really like it is that it's not, like, goopy, you know. Or watery. Another question? Oh, we have a question slide. Thank you. Thank you to both of you um, for this amazing um, talk. Um, so many lessons learned, I think, for all of us in the audience. So thank you. Can we give them a round of applause? Thank you. I'm I'm mostly interested in, um, Jeffrey, what you were saying about um, how over 20,000 people died of HIV AIDS in the 1980s during um, Ronald Reagan's presidency and how he didn't utter the words HIV AIDS until six years later. What finally got him to say something? Were there social actions going on? What was, what was happening at the time? What was the tipping point for him? There was a, an amazing organization based in New York City called ACT UP, which is the AIDS Coalition, Coalition to Unleash Power. And they did just tremendous amounts of community organizing. They opened their own hospitals. They created their own medical institutions. Um, they created their own underground economy of medication providers. And there was just so much social activism at the time that it could no longer really be ignored. Is it possible that it started to affect the heterosexual population too? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, especially when rich white people start getting it, then, you know, we need to do something about it then. But as long as it was, you know, poor people and people of color who are primarily gay men, there wasn't really much concern. Interestingly, just as a quick aside, due to this uh, HIV AIDS fear, uh, the Food and Drug Administration and the American Red Cross and so on still actually prevent people who have sex with men who have sex with men from donating blood um, for fear that they would contaminate the blood supply. Um, so anybody, regardless of how you identify, if you have sex with a man who has sex with other men, um, you are not legally allowed to donate blood. So if if you're a cisgender woman and you have a cisgender bisexual boyfriend, you're not allowed to donate blood either. So, and it's all come from the same fear. Any other questions we could take? Troy? Do you have a question? Oh, can I just quickly, I just quickly want to say one more thing. That, that organization, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, had this amazing slogan, um, which was featured in the picture that says, silence equals death. Um, so we've seen a lot of 
a lot of social organizations play on that slogan. So recently you could see the Black Lives Matter um, movement say white silence equals violence. Um, so it's uh, a very popular slogan to get people's attention. We have another question up front here. Put it real, hold it real close, my friend. Oh, there okay. you go. So you said that um, mass media and pornography is not a really good place to get um, accurate sexual education. So where can people go to get um, good information? Well, there's tons of pornography that's actually wonderful pornography. There's uh, many. <laughs> that's true. There, there are a lot of feminist organizations that make pornography. Realistic pornography. Um, that, that does involve consent. Can, that's throughout, you know, so is this okay? Um, especially when penetration is involved. Is this okay? Is this still okay? So, uh, so it's not that all pornography is terrible. There is a wonderful um, pornography that's feminist in nature that, that really is wonderful pornography. So there's still great porn. Um, and I think, you know, lots of, I think you were gonna say something too. Lots of different places can give us positive ideas about sex. Certainly courses that you could take. There are plenty of uh, academic research articles. You know, although you're talking about, you know, the general population, right? Uh, Planned Parenthood has plenty of information on healthy sexuality. Our textbooks that we have. As long as they were published after 2002. Yeah. Um, yeah. So also, this one, it depends, but a physician may be a good place to talk. Um, when I first moved to Chicago, I was, you know, this was several years ago, I moved to Chicago and I was trying to find a, a new physician who'd be my primary care doctor. And when trying to find out who my physician was, I would ask about PrEP, that Truvada pill I told you about. And if the physician had no idea what I was talking about, okay, you're not going to be the person who's going to be my primary care doctor. Um, so if you want information about good sex, you could, if you, want, if you want to do like a litmus test to find out whether your physician is going to be knowledgeable about um, these issues, you could ask about PrEP. And if your physician's like, oh, I don't know, mm -hmm. maybe not that person. The National Accreditation for Sexual Therapists has plenty of great information. Uh, there's another website called Advocates for Youth that promotes healthy sexuality. Uh, a lot of government agencies also do promote that as well. Uh, but when I was thinking about pornography and the research that I've read about pornography, um, as uh, Jeffrey, as you had mentioned, uh, it, gives us, it gives us an unrealistic expectation of how our partners should look. But I think we also should mention, too, that you know, if young people are watching uh, you know, derogatory pornography and they think this is how sex is supposed to be, I mean, they're going to be pretty surprised once they engage into a sexual experience that people don't necessarily like having fluids shot in the face, you know, and things like that. Forgive me, you know, but, but, or that women don't want to be treated a certain way, men don't want to be treated a certain way, and the way that we talk to each other is not necessarily the way that people want to be spoken to. So, I mean, it'll give you an interesting idea about the mechanics, I suppose, of, of uh, sexuality, but, but I don't know if that's where I would start my education. And Hey, Nick, I just interrupt. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't mention libraries. And yeah, no, of oh, course, of that. course. I'm, but as you're, we have so many young adults, as you're moving into wherever towns you're going to live, there's debates about at what age can a public library give material about sex to people who are under 18. And when we hear that we get um, not always the best information from schools or from parents or from other institutions, there's a big movement in public libraries that we should be that safe place that can share scientifically accurate information with people who need it, and what age should that happen? That's a big debate that we have in our society. Who is allowed to get access to that? And I think that's, I wouldn't be a good librarian if I didn't mention that, and that's a role that those um, great institutions play. Um, we do that too. And Troy, we have an agency, uh, a non-for-profit agency in this area called Pillars, who offer a lot of great information too. So, and, no, your counseling, counseling. center, right? Absolutely. All over the place. I was curious to say something about penis size. Um, so I was thinking, you hear penis size is supposed to be bigger, right? Bigger is better. But what about the man, or or anybody who identifies as a male that wants, you know, has an average size penis, six, seven inches, but says, you know, or anybody who has a penis regardless of how they right, identify. Yeah, of course. I, I would like nine, they say, you know, I want to be out there and I want to be able to pleasure people. I, I, w would you think they'll be surprised that most people are not interested in a size that big? 
I think they're going to cause a lot of pain. And it might be a curse. So we shouldn't always get what we ask for, right? Or what we think we need. Well, I mean, realistically speaking, if like there's too big, right? It wouldn't even be enjoyable for the person who has a very large penis uh, because then they couldn't you know, penetrate the way that, you know, all the way, which might feel better, so. True, and if they're not pleasuring their partner and they're causing their partner pain, that could be challenging too. So compatibility, I would suppose, would be the best thing. Lego pieces should match. With lube. <laughs> okay, on that note, are there any further questions? So we have one announcement. Did I see Carrie was here? Yes? Yes. You, sorry. Put you on the spot before everyone. I just want to say, wow, thank you. You guys are fantastic. You guys, this is a fantastic resource. I don't. I work at the Crisis Center for South Suburbia. We do um, intimate partner violence, teen dating violence, um, abuse of all types. Um, and I just want to say, just observing this, this is a fantastic resource. And thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you. Um, as it definitely comes into play and. As you, you know, all have said, you know, the, the silence around certain issues like human sexuality and intimate partner violence are a huge issue in our society. And so it's great to see you guys talking about this. And one thing that we're talking about this month, it's um, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so we are working to bring awareness to the subject and um, also actually have a little bit of fun. So this weekend on Saturday here at Moraine in the M building, we're gonna be having our Dance for Awareness event, and it's $25 to come and hang out five hours. We're gonna have dance music. Uh, B96 is gonna be here, Nikki from the Midday Show, and we're gonna be just kind of bringing this topic to light, supporting people who've been through it, um, honoring people who've lost their lives from it, and just kind of trying to raise money and awareness so that other people don't have to go through it alone. So. Um, we invite you to join us. We have um, cards here if you want to take them with information about where and when and what it looks like. But we invite you all to be part of it. And we thank you so much um, to Moraine for um, facilitating and supporting our event and for bringing these types of issues to light. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One, um, one other uh, note uh, before you all get ready to leave. We have some resources right back here. We have our counseling brochures. Um, we have information on how to report a sexual assault here on campus, what our Title IX process looks like. So what are your rights as a student here on campus? Um, we will also have the Dance for Awareness postcards there, information for our community partner pillars, um, and again, I do want to put a plug in for our last two events for the fall season. We'll continue this topic of domestic violence and sexual assault on college campuses through the spring, but we do have, again, the flyers are on your chair. Um, so if you are interested in learning more about um, domestic violence and sexual assault within the LGBTQI community, we have speakers coming in from the Center on Halstead on November 9th, so plug it into your calendars. Uh, it'll be here in the library. And then, of course, our special feature event in the Moraine Rooms, um, Sex Signals by Catharsis. Um, so please join us for our last two events this fall. Thank you again to our awesome, awesome Thank presenters. You.